0: Yeah man
1: And it already is legalized And if it is legalized And you're in our legal state I, resp- I I ask you That you do go to the Healing Tree The Healing Tree that's located on 3995 East 50th Avenue And they got the, the Top of the line Like concentrate They got the shatter, The wax And their growers are super sick So they got the runs. They got the purple, they got the green, they got the yellow, and they got the chunky. All for your smoking pleasure. So remember, check it out. The Healing Tree, 3995 East 50th Avenue. And they got the dopest staff ever. Peace out to Nick, Chloe, Ramani, Shanae, Shanae, I remember your name someday. I got you. My P-Town homegirl. And uh, you know, if you go in, hey, let them know you listen to the Harvey G Show. You might get a high five or something. Singers <laughs> smoke.
0: Neighbors, it's your old pal MZ here again. So, today there's been a lot of talk about workers' rights and unionization. If you're at all paying attention to the news these days, there's a huge movement right now at a factory in Alabama where the workers are attempting to unionize at a Amazon warehouse. Now, Amazon is cranking up and spending tons of money in opposition to this. Now, it kind of made me wonder, or maybe think, anyway, what is it that they're afraid of? Amazon, I mean. I know what the workers are afraid of. They're being afraid, they're afraid of being mistreated because they have been, long work hours, little or no breaks, probably unsafe conditions in some cases. These are the things that unions were developed for, to protect the workers. So today, I ran across an article, that I thought was pretty interesting. I thought I'd bring it up, read some excerpts from it, and let you make your own decision. So this article sources from the History Channel's website and their news department, and it was written by Evan Andrews. Shout out to Evan, it's a very quality article. The title of the article, written in September 1st of 2018, or I'm sorry, originally written in August twenty fifth of twenty sixteen, but there were some updates made in September first of twenty eighteen. The title of this article is "The Battle of Blair Mountain." Now I had I was not very familiar with this other this specific conflict. I am mildly familiar with coal miners and that industry, only because. I am a descendant of coal miners my grandfather um, and many of his brothers uh, worked in a coal mine in Arkansas and it had been described to me that and so this would have been back in the mid 40s post World War one or I'm sorry post World War two when my father was born uh, in that era. And working as coal miners, I've been told in family stories that they made 50 cents a day at that time. So, again, late 1940s, early 50s, 50 cents a day and sun up to sundown. So, they're in the mine basically living as uh as, as as mold men i guess uh and this is you know probably six seven days a week that's their life i can't even imagine the lack of safety conditions back then um so anyway that's just a little bit about my background in the, the coal mining area i've never worked as a coal miner i i don't even know that I would be, last a couple of days. It sounds like very difficult and strenuous work. Today, then it sounds almost horrific. So here's to the article. And there's a couple of things that come out in this article that were very interesting to me, that were things that I had heard but didn't know that, that's, that this is where they came from. So here we go. The Battle of Blair Mountain... By Evan Andrews. In late August 1921, Union miners and coal company supporters clashed near Blair Mountain, West Virginia, in what has been called the largest armed uprising since the Civil War. The Battle of Blair Mountain was the result of years of bitter labor disputes between the miners and coal companies of southern West Virginia. Since the late 1800s, the coal miners of the state's Mingo, Logan, and McDowell counties had operated under a repressive company town system. Workers mined using leased tools and were paid low wages in company currency, or script, which could only be used at the company store. Pausing for a moment, now, the company store... That may sound familiar to you. There is a very popular song called 16 Tons, written by Merle Travis in 1946 that describes coal miners. This song was later made famous by Tennessee Ernie Ford in 1955. The chorus of this song, just in case you're not familiar, don't remember, goes like this. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Now, this this wasn't hyperbole. Okay, this wasn't exaggeration. The lives that these workers were living, it was pretty bad. Okay, there, there was no workers' rights back then. So the development of unions was a critical component to keeping people safe in the workplace. So look at how this is set up. You have these men who work with leased tools that they have to pay to use. They're already paid low wages. And even those wages come as company currency that they can only use at the company store. What in the world is this? All right. Safety conditions were often deplorable. Yet despite the efforts of groups such as the United Miners Workers, UMW, the mine operators had kept unions out of the region through intimidation and violence. Companies compelled their workers to sign so-called yellow dog contracts pledging not to organize and they used armies of private detectives to harass striking miners and evict them from the company owned homes hold on a minute company owned homes so we have these men leasing tools from the company getting paid in company script and living in company owned homes this does not sound like decent working conditions to me. Maybe, maybe a hundred years ago, but this, I don't even think a hundred years ago. This sounds terrible, my opinion. Back to the article. <clears throat> the hostilities only ramped up in 1920 when the UMW finally started to organize workers in Mingo County. On May 19th of that year, members of the Baldwin Feltz detective agency arrived in the town of Matawan, I hope that's right, to evict union miners from houses owned by the Stone Mountain Coal Company. So how about that? You have a bad day at work, maybe? Boss says, you're just not cutting it. You just lost your house. You lost your company store script. You lost your tools. What, I mean, what does that, what does that do to the worker? My God, this, this is, it's pretty intense. Okay, moving forward. After catching wind of the detective's activities, Madowan Mayor Cabell Testerman and a pro-union sheriff named Sid Hatfield raised a small posse and confronted them near the local train station. A verbal argument quickly escalated into a gunfight. When the smoke cleared, seven Baldwin-Feltz agents had been killed along with Mayor Tesserman and two local miners. The so-called Matawan Massacre, Galvanized support for the UMW, which collected new members and organized a strike in the summer of 1920. The coal companies responded by bringing in non-union replacement workers. And over the next several months, the two sides engaged in a fierce guerrilla war. Murder by laying in wait and shooting from ambush has become common, Mingo County sheriffs wrote. In May of 1921. The tipping point in the mine war finally came in August 1st of 1921 when Sheriff Sid Hatfield was shot dead by Baldwin-Feltz agents as he entered the McDowell County Courthouse. The assassination outraged the miners who considered Hatfield a hero for his involvement in the Matawan shootout. Within days, Thousands of Union supporters had flocked to the outskirts of Marmot, a small town located near the state capital of Charleston. Led by UMW organizer were World War I veterans, and they came armed to the teeth with military-issued Springfield rifles and shotguns. It is time to lay down the Bible and take up the rifle, Minor and Baptist Reverend John Wilburn declared. Now, it mentions that these uh, union members were going to free the union in, men imprisoned in the area. Based on what I've just read, every damn one of these guys were were prisoners. What, I mean, what do you do? How are you going to move? Right? I mean, you don't have any money because your only money you're given is, is for the store. So it's not like you can just load the family up and head off to, you know, California to seek out your fortune. This is some pretty oppressive conditions just based off what what i've read here it doesn't even go into how bad the safety conditions probably were no masks i guarantee you Uh, these guys are breathing in coal dust cancer i'm sure many of them ended up with lung cancer at least again this this does not sound like a very mutually beneficial (laughs) situation between worker and employer just my observation i guess moving back to the article The miners' route to Mingo required them to pass through Logan County, a coal company stronghold ruled by an anti-union sheriff named Don Chafin. Upon learning of the march, Chafin scrapped together a 3,000-strong army of state police, deputies, and citizen militiamen and prepared to fight. No armed mob will cross the Logan County line, he proclaimed. Chafin and his supporters... Had soon constructed a network of machine gun nests and trenches near Blair Mountain, a two-thousand-foot peak that stood directly in the miner's path. Wow! So even back then, it would seem that the police seemed a little bit uh, militarized. I mean, a local sheriff setting up machine gun nests. I mean, this is a hundred years ago. Wow. On August 24th, the main body of coal miners set out from Marmont and headed south towards Mingo County. Keeney and Mooney, remember those are our union organizers, made a last-minute attempt to call off the march after meeting with the War Department's General, Harry Bandholtz, who warned that any violence would prove disastrous for the union. But the proposed ceasefire collapsed when two miners died in a skirmish with Chapin's forces. By August 28, some 10,000 Union men had massed near the border of Logan County and began trading gunfire with company supporters. To distinguish one another in the dense forests, many of the miners tied red handkerchiefs around their necks. They soon became known as the Redneck Army. Okay, so, I did a little bit of research, as I'm prone to do, and I found out that this is not the first reference of redneck, that that term has been around for quite a lot longer than when this uh, was referred to back during this conflict, but it's still, it follows the same, I guess, category of what, as an epithet or as a slur that it has been used. Uh, up to that point. And in this case it all it, it's you know those guys were doing it to try to identify themselves, but as it developed forward that phrase redneck got I guess kind of attached to union workers or the lower class union workers. So again, there is an article that I will put in the show notes as well as this article that I'm reading that kind of talks about uh, the term redneck and where it came from. So if you were interested in looking into that, that will be in the show notes. So, back to the article The first heavy fighting in the Battle of Blair Mountain began on August 31st when a group of around 75 miners, led by Reverend Wilburn, stumbled across some of Chaffin's Logan defenders on a wooded ridge. Each side asked the other for a password and received the wrong answer, prompting a shootout that killed three deputies and one miner. That same day, the main army of miners commenced a two-pronged assault on Chaffin's trenches and breastwork. Scores of Union men streamed up the mountainside, but despite their superior numbers, they were repeatedly driven back by the defenders, who riddled them with machine gun fire from the high ground. The miners made more progress when the battle was renewed on September 1st. That morning, a detachment of Union men assaulted a spot called Craddock Fork with a Gatlin gun looted from the company store. Wow. Logan forces... Fought back with a machine gun, but after three hours of heavy fire, their weapon jammed. The miners surged forward and briefly broke the defensive lines, only to be repulsed by a fusillade of bullets from a second machine gun nest located further up the ridge. Now, yeah, I know this is 1921, but this is pretty intense to me. It It, it, it would seem like if something like this broke out today, It'd be all over the place. But again, keep in mind, back then, news did not travel fast. I mean, yeah, we, it, was, it was a bit more modern than, than, than the 1800s. But still, there was there was no internet that where tomorrow somebody could throw up a, a, a link that, or a, a video to show what was going on. This was all happening. And I'm sure the government had to have known what was going on. And at some point, they did step in, and, and the army was brought in to try to quell this conflict. But still, this is, this is some pretty crazy stuff. So, moving on. For the rest of the day, the hills and hollows echoed with gunfire as the Union men repeatedly attacked the defenders' lines. Machine guns cracked up there so you would think the whole place was coming down on you, miner Ira Wilson later recalled. At one point in the battle, the din also included the sound of falling bombs, Sheriff Chafin had chartered three private biplanes and equipped them with tear gas and pipe bombs loaded with nuts and bolts for shrapnel. The plane dropped homemade explosives over two of the miners' strongholds, but failed to inflict any casualties. I mean, here we go. We got a sheriff that's, that's got an air force that he's that he's assembled here. This is crazy. All right. In the in the end, the miners' siege of Blair Mountain was only ended by the arrival of federal troops. So here we go. A squadron of Army Air Service reconnaissance planes began patrolling the skies on September 1st, and by the following day, General Holtz had mobilized some 2,100 Army troops on the orders of President Warren G. Harding. Scattered fighting continued between the miners and the Logan defenders until September 4th, but most of the men welcomed the government intervention and laid down their weapons. Roughly 1,000 exhausted miners eventually surrendered to the Army while the rest scattered and returned home. It was later estimated that some one million rounds had been fired during the battle. Wow! Reports of casualties ranged a few as 20 killed to as many as 100, but actual numbers had never been confirmed. The Battle of Blair Mountain is now cited as a pivotal chapter in American labor history, but in the short term, it proved to be a crushing defeat for the miners. The state of West Virginia charged Keeney, Mooney, and some 20 other Union men with treason, and hundreds of others were indicted for murder. Nearly all were later acquitted, but the legal battle emptied the UMWA's coffers and, the, and hindered its organizi- organizing efforts. By the end of the decade, only a few hundred miners in West Virginia were still members. The Union wouldn't reclaim the coal fields until mid 1930s in the great depression when workers rights to organize were enshrined in new deal legislation such as the national industrial recovery act so this article fascinates me i'm not a legal scholar uh, especially not 20th century early 20th century uh, legal situations but Man, this just really does seem a little bit lopsided. Now, I know there's a lot of details that are not included in this article, but still, on its face, and I trust the history of Christ, they've been around a long time. I don't think they're trying to shine on and make make anybody out uh, to be a villain that's not a villain. I mean, the article is not, it's, to me, is written in a pretty fair way. But anyway, so I, I wanted to follow this up with just a little brief history about my experience um, with unions, or not experience, really, to be honest, because I've never worked as a union worker. Uh, Now, I've worked in construction my entire life. Uh, My father tells a story of when he was, uh, uh, before I was born, back when he and my mom first got married, that he worked at a gear factory and was fired for attempting to organize a union. He eventually, he and my mom and my two older sisters, moved from that area to Texas, and at that point is when he got his first job as an electrician and he was an electrician from then on. And that's, but it was a non-union position. Now unions are not very strong in the Dallas area and and really haven't been for at least in my career. Anyway, there are union companies here, but there's way more non-union companies here in Texas. It particularly in the industry that I'm in, in the electrical industry. So, Having been raised in a non-union home, which I find is fairly interesting, seeing as how he attempted to organize a union. But, again, conditions were different here. He came from a very rural part of Arkansas. I I liken it much to what these guys were going through, probably. Again, it was a coal mining town that he grew up in. And so that's got to have, like, a, I don't know, a blanket of just tension that it puts on an area to be to 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 be developed in that kind of conditions, and and it's from what I can see, it continued to perpetuate uh, for at least a, a little while. Anyway, with again the gear factory, I don't know what the conditions were like there, but if guys were looking to unionize, they're not usually looking to unionize for anything more than equal rights or at least safe work conditions, right? They're not trying to become millionaires. None of these guys are gonna become millionaires working as coal miners or gear factory workers, right? They just wanna be able to wake up, go to work, and go home with all of their limbs and, and, and not have the fear of getting some disease or, or getting a, from, from breathing in some fumes or breathing in some chemicals. I mean, come on. These are the reasons unions were developed. So moving here to Texas, Conditions were working conditions were a little bit better. So the unions were not um, as necessary here. Now, I'm not trying to get into a a union non union uh, debate here. That's not my my purpose. My purpose is to, to just bring light to there is a need for oversight in the corporations today. Too long have they taken advantage of the workers. And the people at the top and the shareholders all profit from that disadvantage, and that just does not seem right to me. So, so I can totally understand the need for, for unions, and I totally support the need for unions in these type of cases, especially where there are dangerous situations that the workers are going to be coming into commonplace. Now, granted coal is in the ground. The only way you can get it out of the ground is to dig big holes and send people down there. They've yet to figure out a way to send robots or something down there that's not going to potentially be killed. So you got to still send guys down there. It's got to be safe to me. I I think that that's just logic, okay? To, To risk a man's life so that the corporation and the stockholders can get a little bit extra percentage? That's ridiculous. So, hence, unions. Now, again, back to my experience with the unions. Raised in a non-union, I mean, we never really talked about unions. I really didn't even know about unions until I got into uh, late high school, probably after high school, when I started working in construction. And so that was in early 90s, and there were some periods during there where business got slow and that's the nature of construction when there's no nobody building buildings nobody's going to be wiring them and or putting up sheetrock or putting up roofing or so construction slows down it happens it, it was almost cyclical it was always during the winter time so if you got lucky and you worked at a company that got a big project over the winter man you were set but if you didn't you were kind of stuck out you had to find another company maybe you'd stumble into those one of those ones that were uh, having those winter projects and be able to hire on there, but in one of those phases, I had to be like nineteen or twenty maybe, and again, I was in one of those in between spots where I'd gotten laid off because work had gotten slow, so I'm searching out for jobs. Well, I'd gotten wind of union. I'd met a guy at a company that had been union before. He mentioned union. He was still union, and but he was so that was the other interesting thing that to me, and I don't know again. I'm not trying to rat nobody out, but when you were, got your union card, my understanding was you had to stay union, unless you quit the union. This guy still had his card, but he worked at a non-union place. I don't really know the rules behind that, but regardless, that was my first exposure to that there were, that was, there was an actual union in Dallas, and so I called him, you know, I mean, hell, I'm out of work, I gotta, gotta get to work, let me check this thing out, and so in talking with the guy on the, on the phone, uh, and, and granted, I'm, I'm not even a license, I'm they didn't even have apprentice licenses back then, uh, but I was still technically an apprentice because I didn't have my journeyman license. So granted, I'm not, I'm just, you know, one of the worker bees. It's not like I'm, I'm a, a major asset to them if I've come in, you know, to join the union, but we talked and he explained how the system worked and it's a seniority system here. And, and, and I'm, a, I have no idea if that's the way all of these work. I'm a, kind of assumed have always assumed in my life. If that story's wrong, please send me a note. Cause I, I do not want to speak something that is uh Uh, that is out of turn but in this particular conversation the way he described the seniority system was as as the newest guy i was the bottom of the list and so when assignments came in to the union hall they were divvied out by seniority so obviously guys who had been part of the union for longer it should go to them and i totally get that makes no makes no issue to me the issue here was there wasn't any work so if, even if I signed up with the union, they didn't have an assignment to give me. So I just kind of left it at that. I thanked him for, for his time and the information and wished him well. And then I continued my search and found a job and moved on. So that is really my only experience with the union. I've never worked at a union company. I don't know. I know a few uh, of my friends that have been union. And, uh, but I, again, I just want to reiterate, I totally understand and support The need for unions in these areas where workers are being taken advantage of. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where that wasn't necessary? But unfortunately, we don't. Too many times we look around and corporations making major profits while their workers are struggling to even live. Now, I was very fortunate to have been raised and taught a trade because that's really the only way that I've, I I was never very good in school. I did go to college and get an associate's degree, but you know, I didn't go for a bachelor's just because I just not my thing, but I've always been able to, you know, take care of my family just because I've had that trade to back up on, you know, to fall back on. Not everybody has that. Some people have to work in, in factories and, packing boxes and working machinery and those kind of things. And so we've got to take care of those people. We got, we got to have those products, right? Where would we be if we didn't get the products that these people were making? So to me, yeah, they didn't start. They weren't the idea engine behind the company. I get that. Those guys should be rewarded. It was a brilliant idea to create whatever that company was and it and it it stars you know sparks up the economy because you're able to hire people, and that's great, but by God, the people that work for you should not be in fear for their life, they should not be in fear for their health, they should not be in fear of their job over some bullshit like, well, you you know we we can't give you a break because we've got to get all this stuff processed out, you know, really? then automate. Now, if the job is going to risk the life of the human or the, health of the, the future health of the human, then it is time to automate. We shouldn't even be doing that with a human being. Just my opinion. Now, too many times we see around where automation does happen and then the worker's out of work. Multiple workers can be out of work. I'm not sure what the solution is there. Now I've heard lots of different theories and you can do your own research, but I do understand that as, as the industri- as our industrial age continues to develop and technologies begin to develop, hopefully we can come up with ways to make mm-hmm. mining safer for these workers. And I, I, I did work at a at a construction company once that did a lot of work at a mine. And that was my first exposure, like real education on mining as I had to go through what was called MSHA, which is like OSHA, but it's for mining. OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is a large regulatory agency, part of the United States Department of Labor. OSHA was originally signed into law in December of 1970 by President Richard Nixon. MSHA, on the other hand, it's also a unit of the Department of Labor, but it focuses on mining. It is the Mine Safety and Health Administration. And it was signed into law in 1977. So I had to do OSHA training as well as MSHA training because there's overlaps between the two, but then there's also things that are specific to mines. So in that process, it yeah, it scared the daylights out of me. I didn't want to go into no mine after hearing some of these horror stories because they do. They did they, they have to. They they want to tell, they want you to be informed. Not as a I guess not really as a fear tactic, but yeah, in a way as a fear tactic, because when you're told these stories about men being trapped and dying and suffocating and uh, I guess it it gives you a little bit more of a safety, you know, mindset. But this company was serious safety. That's one of the things that I was most uh, impressed about them, that they – now, it was mandatory to obviously go through the OSHA and MSHA training because of this. But still, they took it – the instructors uh, took it very seriously and were all about the safety of the workers. And that was 100% uh, a relief to me because I was in a management position, and so that meant I was going to be – overseeing some of these people that might be working in these conditions. And man, I certainly did not want to be the guy telling a guy to go down into a hole, um, with potential hazard and something happened, you know, that would feel horrible about that. So anyway, the, uh, the mining industry isn't the only one that has these kind of conditions. Now, obviously you've got, um, car, uh, our car auto, auto industry that's uh, heavily unionized uh, because there's so many moving parts. When you've got that much machinery and those things aren't very forgiving, if your hand gets caught in a gear, that gear just keeps on moving, you know. And so, if that gear was exposed because uh, maintenance hadn't been done, done on the machine and you're just told, hey, we'll just avoid that area, that's not adequate. Those repairs need to be made on that equipment so that it's safe for the worker to work around. Now, that means the employer is going to have to spend a little bit of money to make those repairs, to make it safe for the workers. Providing a safe workplace for your employees should be a logical cost of doing business, I would think. Same thing goes with the environment of wherever you're doing this work. There are studies that are coming out where the chemicals that are being used for fracking is being found in the bloodstream of children. That's unacceptable. We're finding microplastics in human placentas. That is unacceptable. We have to figure out how to keep the workers and the environment around these plants and around these processes and keep them safe. They might might have a slightly less profit margin that quarter. But you know what? Even if you just have one miner or one factory worker that is saved because of that, I think that's worth it. Human life is worth more than profit let me say that again human life is worth more than profit in case some of you thick-headed people out there didn't hear me human life is more important than profit if a product cannot be produced without harming or hazarding its workers, then that product doesn't need to be produced. I'm sorry. It's not worth it. If a product cannot be produced without poisoning the neighborhood in which that company is located, that product should not be produced. Now, I'm going to reference Flint, Michigan, there's still chemicals and shit in their water how, how is that acceptable who in that boardroom when they said well uh, this process that we're going to do is going to spew all kinds of garbage into the water system where this factory is located but man we're going to make a hell of a lot of money Cha-ching! Does that not sound insane to anyone else? But someone had to make the decision to ignore that they were going to pollute in order to produce the product. And that the long-term ramifications of that would be terrible physical ailments to the children and people in those areas. Unacceptable to me. I'll pay an extra dollar for gas or an extra $10 to buy something at the store if that means you've got to do it safe and spend a little bit more money. But maybe if you trimmed a little bit of your profits, you might be able to make these make these adjustments. Or, hey, maybe let's just not do it. If this means people are going to get hurt or die, we need to rethink it. Let's go back to the old drawing board, right? But too many times... We've seen companies take advantage of their workers or their the, the people in their areas and this kind of stuff continues to happen. It's got to stop. People are more important. Hmm. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just a little too naive. Maybe it's not possible to live in a world where workers can be treated fairly and companies can still make a decent profit. I'm not opposed to that. The companies has to stay open. I need some of these products that I, that they make. But man, it just really does weigh on me sometimes to think that some of these products that I buy might have the guy might have been in danger the workers may have been in terrible conditions or whatever. All right. So to la- to wrap this one up, I hope everybody out there is working in, in a condition that that's safe. I hope everybody out there is able to wake up with confidence knowing that they're going to work but that they're going to come home. I hope everybody out there is able to make enough just to live and maybe save a little bit for the future but it just there's it, there's industries where it just doesn't seem like they really have much concern for human life that they really do look at their workers just as replaceable parts in their machine. I'm not saying that's every company, but it's some of them. And you know it is. And what's happening down in Alabama right now is because those workers deserve better. And I'm not talking about pay. I know Mr. Bezos loves to tell us about how, well, our workers have been paid $15 an hour for two years. That's great. That's just fine. But that's not all of it. They have to be in safe conditions. They have to be treated like people, not like parts. People need breaks. People need those soft cushion mats to stand on because they're standing all day. They need back support braces. They need gloves. They need PPE, safety glasses, hard hats, all of this stuff has, to, that's the employer's responsibility to provide a safe workplace. So what do you think, dear listener? Have you ever had any place of employment that you worked at that you felt like was not really the safest place? Hopefully it's not currently, but if it is, there are ways to try to correct that. Talk to your employer first. Explain to him, hey, I don't feel comfortable with this situation. I I think maybe we need to rethink how we're going to do this. Or, hey boss, I think I need some gloves and safety glasses for, for doing the drilling into this wall because there's particles that are blowing up back in my face and I'd like to protect my eyesight for the future or man it's really loud in here with all this machinery is there any way I could get a hold of some earmuffs so those to me are the kind of things that you have to bring it up too many times we just go throughout oh okay well that's how they want me to do it I guess I'll do it don't take the chance please, your life and health is worth way more than whatever it is that they're paying you. So if you've got any stories, send them to me. My IG's in the show notes, send me a message. Email's in the show notes, send me a message. I know in my industry, in the electrical industry, we've come a long way. Back when I first started out, Yes, it wasn't a union, uh, and so there were some things that may have not been the safest thing that we, the way we did it, but at that time, it was kind of, I guess, industry practice to do things a certain way, just because there hadn't been enough research done on the science of electricity and some of the dangers of it. Well, now, 20, 30 years later, it's a tremendous difference, way safer to be an electrician than it was even 20 years ago. So these advancements can happen. Obviously, we have OSHA and MSHA, so we're stepping in the right direction. We just need to keep it moving. So cheers to all my folks out there. Thank you for listening. I hope that this has entertained you a little bit and maybe brought you a little bit of knowledge. But, at the end of the day, we are all in this together. So, let's start acting like it. Treat each other like bros. Treat each other like humans. It can't be that hard to just consider other people. So... Keep up the good fight down there in Alabama, folks, and anybody else. If your employer is stepping out of line, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to stand up because this has gone on for too long. All right. That's it. That's all I got. Indecisive Podcast. Signing out. Just the audacity of this sheriff and the way that he, I understand that he's there to keep the peace, but organizing three thousand militiamen and setting up machine gun nests and bombs from biplanes—I mean, this all seems really over the top to me. And and it's the workers that end up getting. Ch-
1: This is the one and only Javi G. You can catch me on Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere else you might find podcasts. You can catch me on YouTube, Javi G Channel, for all the fun updates. You can see me on TikTok, Javier Eric Gobbledone. You can see me on IG, Beam 77 Anywhere you can think of me, I might be. Have a good one.
0: Nice. Beautiful.